Well, good morning, everybody. It's a joy to be here with you. Thank you to Matt. Thank you to the band. So it's wonderful to be worshipping together with those who love the Lord Jesus. Um, Matt is very kind, uh, but this church has done uh, as much, if not more, uh, for our church uh, than has gone the other way. We love our relationship. We love our partnership. I think it's on. Oh, all those nice things I said about you, I don't have to say again, because you didn't hear. But no, we, we love your generosity, we love the music that we learn from you guys, but most of all, we love that you love Jesus, uh, and we love that we know that this part of the city, this city that is in so great a need for the gospel of the Lord Jesus, is uh, so well served. So we love you, disappointed that uh, Nathan and the rest of the family, and Peter and June aren't here, but we'll, uh, we'll see them again at some point. So thank you for inviting me, even if... You don't know who I am and didn't know you'd invited me, but thank you. <laughs> and if you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at Galatians 5 and we're going to read the first 12 verses. I can give you the page number in my Bible, but that won't help you very much. So Galatians chapter 5. Verses 1 to 12. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's just take a moment before I God and pray as we begin. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have shone the light of Christ into us. Oh, Father, by your spirit, be with us, we pray. Open our hearts, open our minds. May this fallen, sinful, yet redeemed man proclaim the word of God because your spirit is at work. Oh Lord, do us good this morning. Show us the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And may our hearts be lifted because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Matt's mentioned our Holiday Bible Club, which happens every year. But Friday by Friday, we have our youth clubs down at the church building. And over the year, with the age group that I've been working with, we've been doing a Bible overview. Um, it tells you how well we're doing, that we started in Genesis and a couple of weeks ago I realized that we're still only at Solomon so we probably needed to speed up a little bit so we're kind of making our way through but just recently we've been teaching the children something very very important about God 
we've been teaching him how dangerous God is. You see, three successive talks covered uh, the curtain in the tabernacle, the Day of Atonement, and the Ark of the Covenant. And we majored on the grace of God living with his people, and what a glory that was. We've marveled at what Christ has done to fulfill all these events and all these symbols, and how we don't have to go through the same things that the Old Testament people of God did. But to the fore, each week, has been the danger of relating to God outside of the way that he dictates. Anyone who passes the curtain in a way not directed by God, death. The high priest gets something wrong on the Day of Atonement, death. Touch the Ark of the Covenant in a non-prescripted way, death. You see, as new covenant Christians, those who live this side of the cross, who can look back and see that all that Jesus did for us at Calvary, we can lose sight of the holiness of God. It is a truly glorious thing that we call Christ our brother, that we call God our father. But in that, we can lose just how mighty and awesome and holy and majestic our God is. And the danger there is in relating to him in a way outside the way that he has given us. The danger of living in a way which demonstrates a lack of confidence in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The means by which we engage with our gods. You see, if you know anything of Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul can come across as someone who's a bit of a broken record. He seems to be hammering the same thing over and over again. You see, in the years before, Paul had preached the gospel in Galatia and many had believed. It had been a wonderful thing. And they joined together and they formed a church. And Paul loved this church. He loved the people. He loved their hearts. He loved the fact that the Lord had been working there. But in the time that Paul had been away, false teachers had come in and they'd begun to distort the gospel message that Paul had first taught. And the presenting issue was circumcision and whether this fundamental marker of the Old Testament, that thing which set apart the men of the Old Covenant from the nations around, those who belonged to God, whether that was still applicable, appropriate, essential in the new covenant, whether you added circumcision to the work of Christ. And Paul is adamant, adamant that it's not necessary, and it's clearly got him going, as he gets pretty emotional, as we saw from the last verse in our reading today. And it's easy to think that he's taking it all a bit too seriously, that Paul has got this kind of topic that gets him on his high horse, and he's just going and going and going and going and going. Just in chapters 3 and 4, he constructs six different arguments just to make the same point, that circumcision isn't necessary. And surely all it would have needed would be a slightly shorter note that just says, Dear Galatians, no need to get circumcised, love Paul. That would have been a whole lot quicker, taken up a whole lot less space, and just got the point in a much easier way. And even if someone did get circumcised, well, what's the big deal? Surely if it helps their relationship with the Lord... Surely if it means that they feel a bit closer to God, surely that's absolutely fine. It's not that big of a deal, isn't it, Paul? And it's not difficult to see the way that we can think like that in our own lives. We live in a culture where approval is given to those who behave, who conform, 
And disapproval is given to those who don't. If I went to Matt after the service and gave him a cup of coffee, that would be a nice thing to do. You'd think that was quite nice of me. If I went to Matt after the service and punched him in the face, you wouldn't think quite so well. I do the right thing, I am congratulated. I do the wrong thing, and I am punished. It's the way our society works, and we take that thinking into our relationship with the Lord. We think that when we behave, he approves of us. And that when we don't, and when we slip away, that he disapproves. We treat him as a kind of sovereign headmaster. And because we don't like the idea of the Lord disapproving of us, we come up with a list of behaviours that we can do or not do to keep us in his good books. It may be that when Sunday comes around, you do or you don't do certain things because you think it will keep you right with God. Maybe there are particular moral markers. You've got a list of things that you think you and others should do, and it will demonstrate whether you and other people are accepted by God. And just as we'd say to Paul that actually it's not that big a deal if some of the Galatians wanted to get circumcised. So it's not that big a deal if we have our list of markers, if we have our list of things that we just help us to think that we are accepted by God or to judge whether others are acceptable. But Paul has no time at all for that way of thinking. You see, for him, circumcision is far more than simply a physical act, but a theological statement that reveals a deep lack of confidence in the gospel of Christ. He's clear that circumcision is not just theologically wrong, but is eternally dangerous because it reveals a mindset opposed to the gospel. And having shown how they are theologically wrong, out of love for the Galatians, he wants to warn them that this is no small matter. He wants them to know, to understand, to feel, to believe, to live the truth that Christ plus anything is nothing. That Christ plus anything is nothing. That however you define that anything, whether it's Christ plus dressing a kind of way or singing a type of way or doing a particular job or whatever, Christ plus anything is nothing. And it's why he begins with this summary statement in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, throughout Paul's letters, across all the letters that he writes, Paul's recurring theme is this is who you are in Christ, so therefore go and live it. This is who you are, so go. And his point here is that those who have been set free by Christ should live as those who are free. Christ has done the work in freeing you, so therefore live as those who have been set free. But Paul knows that the drag of our hearts is back to justifying ourselves, to putting it back on our own efforts, to striving. We're doers. We like to do things. And it brings us back again to the situation where we're trying to make it about us. And so he calls us to stand firm, to not revert to the old way of thinking, that it's about what I can do. In the gospel, there is freedom from guilt. So don't let yourself be burdened. In the gospel, there's freedom from law-based acceptance. So don't submit again to the slavery of works, to constantly hoping, wondering whether you've done enough, whether you're good enough. In the gospel, there's freedom from the past, the power to stand against that word in verse 1 again. 
The freedom to stand against again. Oh, it's happened again. Oh, I've slipped again. Oh, I've failed. I've not met the mark again. But what may have dominated your life, what may have dominated your thinking before, doesn't need to anymore. There is no need to submit again. You're free from that. Christ has set you free. And Paul wants us to emphasize the freedom there is in knowing the unconditional acceptance of God through Christ. That even when we don't feel accepted, we are if we belong to him. Paul wants us to be liberated, to live out the truth of our acceptance. But he wants to alert us to the danger of lacking confidence in the gospel. That this will be an ongoing battle. That as our hearts are changed and made more like that of the Lord Jesus, there will still be that pullback to focusing on ourselves. So let's see first the danger of living without confidence in the gospel. You see, this first section leaves us in no doubt whatsoever as to what Paul's response would be if we said to him, Paul, you're taking this all a little bit too seriously. Why don't you just wind your neck in a little bit and lighten up? You see, the issue is circumcision, but this is no mere academic debate. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. See, Paul says three things that should stop us in our tracks at the strength of his language, at the consequences of being circumcised. He says in verse 2 that Christ will be of no advantage to you at all no profit no good it will be of no value for you to stand before God and use the name of Christ no value at all now that is a statement to cause us to sit up and listen you will say I belong to Christ and he will reply no you don't no you don't but there's more to come See, in verse 4, he shows the next consequence. You are severed from Christ. You are severed from Christ. The Greek word translated severed, it speaks of a reducing of a relationship to nothing due to inactivity. There's no connection between them and Christ, and the relationship has withered. There is no connection, no bond between the two. Which leads to the third shocking statement in verse 4. You have fallen away from grace. You think, surely that's impossible. Surely the point of grace is that it's undeserved and so it can't be lost. Yet Paul shows just how serious this issue is. And the heart of the problem is shown in the midst of these statements there in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts, accepts circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You see, the false teachers were operating as pick-and-mix dispensers. They were saying it was great to have Christ. They weren't denying Jesus. Those guys are easy to spot. These guys were saying, yes, you do need Jesus, but you need to add some of your own stuff to really guarantee your future. Jesus will kind of rubber stamp your ticket to heaven, but you need to just work to make sure that you don't lose your ticket and you keep hold of it and everything is ready for you to go to heaven. But Paul shows... That's not how it works. 
there can be no mixing and matching of law and grace. The moment you bring in a touch of law, you have to bring in the whole law. You see, this is the heart of the danger for all of us who bring in our own rules to help our justification. You try and top up just to make sure we feel a bit better. You see, relying on law, relying on our own standards we've made ourselves, it puts the emphasis back on us. Our standing before God comes back to depending upon us rather than Christ. And Paul wants to be clear that even if it's only 0.1% about us, that actually means it's 100% about us. The moment it's even a tiny bit about us, it becomes all about us. See, the implication of the physical act of circumcision was that those who were relying on it now would have to rely on it in the presence of God, would have to rely on themselves and their own efforts in the presence of God. And as the 10-year-olds from our Friday Night Youth Club could tell you, that's a dangerous place to be, relying on yourself before God. See, any work that is added to Christ's work leads to him being of no value, of being no advantage. It leads to alienation from him, and it leads to a fall from grace. You rely on grace, God's undeserved kindness, or you rely on works and your own efforts. There's no middle ground. And of course, it's not two ways to the same direction. It's not that one person says, oh, I'll rely on God and I'll rely on myself and we'll both meet together at the end and it will all be great. No one can stand on their own works. No one can earn their own acceptance or keep their own acceptance before God. Which is why it's so dangerous when we try and top up our efforts, top up what Christ has done with our own efforts. Our mindset can so easily be that Christ has saved us, but we need to work to keep there. That we think that he's watching us with a stick in his hand, just waiting for us to fall. And so we need to keep ourselves clean the whole time. Those white robes that we sang of this morning. It's as if we have to keep them clean and we have to keep scrubbing them down. And if something gets on there, we have to make sure that Christ doesn't notice and keep it clean. The Galatians were saying the gospel wasn't enough. The gospel wasn't enough to keep you. That Christ's work was deficient in some way. And once you're thinking like that, it's no distance at all to say that Christ is of no value. But Paul has the antidote to such thinking. He has the key to heal us from this with a glorious vision in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, Paul here sums up what it means to be a Christian. If you're following Christ today, then you have been saved by him. You are being saved by him and you will be saved by him. He begins with through the spirit, showing not just the alternative to through law, but the only way that someone can know God. The only way there can be that vibrant, that living, that active connection is through the spirit. That every believer is made alive by the spirit's power. That every believer lives in the power that raised Christ from the dead because the spirit lives within them. That event in the past, it leads to a new way of life in the present. As Paul speaks of the believer as one who eagerly waits by faith. Who eagerly waits by faith. There's a joy that he's free from the burden because the future is already secured. I don't need to worry about the most important thing in life and death. And so I live in freedom because of that glorious truth. 
can live by faith for the rest of our lives. And what is that secured future? Well, it's there again, the hope of righteousness. All that we need to live fully in God's presence will be ours in Christ. Everything is there, the fruit of his life and death and resurrection. It's a glorious hope that everything that we need to stand before God will be given to us by Christ. And it's the gospel which should shape our mindset about how we should live now. The Dutch theologian Anthony Hakama said this about the Christian hope. The Christian hopes for far greater blessings in the future, not because he now has so little, but because he already has so much. It's not that we have to grit our teeth and just wait until the glory of the future. Yes, the glory of the future far outweighs what is now. But we look and we see all that we have in Christ. And it is that that is the spur to live day by day. We rely on what we have. The gift of Christ. The gift of the Spirit. The gift of his word. The gift of the family of God. So do you see all that you have in Christ? Do you see all that the gospel has won for you? As you preach the gospel to yourself daily, remind yourself of the blessings of being in Christ, of knowing him. Meditate on how much you have. Meditate on the blessings that you have through Christ, how much was won for you at the cross. Rejoice about what is true about you because Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. Marvel in your union with Christ by the Spirit that means that you are accepted. That means that you know his smile. That means that you know his glory. That those words that Jesus heard at his baptism, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You can know that for you because you are in Christ. That you are his. That you are accepted. That you belong because you are in Christ. Delight in your adoption. That means that you call the holy God Father. You call him Father. We have so much, all of it given to us by grace through faith in Christ. So the question is, why would we sully it with our own feeble, our own lowly efforts? When you compare that, when you truly have Christ in the position that he is, it is mindless to say, well, okay, I'll just add a bit of myself. It's like me standing before an artistic masterpiece and thinking, I'll just get a brush and improve it a little bit. Mona Lisa, it's all right, but just you wait till I've had a go and finished it. It's nonsense, isn't it? Absolute nonsense. And so it is to such a greater extent with the gospel. When we see what Christ has done, when we see who we are, why would we think, oh, I'll do this little bit because that'll make me more acceptable? Look what Christ has done to make you acceptable. Paul says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What is it that counts in this world? It's trusting Christ and expressing the all-consuming love that is the fruit of knowing him. Do you have that confidence that the Christ of the gospel is all that you need? If you do, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The danger of living without the gospel, without confidence in the gospel. But Paul isn't finished yet. He's shown the danger of living without confidence, but he then moves on to show the danger of teaching without confidence in the gospel. You see, throughout Galatians, we're not given many details of these kind of shadowy false teachers who are there and they're not there and in and out. 
and leading the Galatians astray. And in fact, verse 10 shows us that Paul didn't know um, personal details. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But what Paul did know was that they needed to be stopped. There was teaching in the church that needed to be rooted out and got rid of. He loves this young Galatian church. And you can hear his frustration in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, I think Paul and I would get on because we both love an athletics metaphor. I think Paul was properly into his sport, and I think we'd, we'd get on well. But the stark word here is were. You were running well. They'd made such a good start. They'd accepted the gospel that Paul had proclaimed. They'd accepted Christ and were running really, really well. But they'd gone off course. And now they're in danger of not finishing. And then we hit on the heart of the problem, obeying the truth. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, following Jesus is about obedience. It's about a change in behavior. It's about holiness. We should be better people than we were. And actually, it's not difficult to imagine the scenario that these false teachers had come into. Here were some new Christians eager to obey their saviour, eager to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But they didn't know what to do. How do I follow Jesus day by day? How do I live a life worthy of the calling of Christ? What does it look like to live out the gospel? There was a teaching vacuum. And into this vacuum strode the false teachers who said the answer to all of those questions is get circumcised is take some of those things from the Old Testament, some of the things that we know about, and add those in, because that will get you accepted. That will get you right before God. It's religious markers that will see you right with God, so get on with it. But that's the very teaching that Paul is seeking to destroy. He knows that these questions are important. They're fundamental to living the Christian life. And he addresses them in the next section when he begins to look at that famous passage about the fruit of the Spirit and what it looks like to give your life fully and completely to the Spirit of God. But for now, he's concerned with rooting out the false teaching and eliminating it. And Paul begins by relating it back to their conversion in verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So their minds would have been drawn back to Paul's introduction, where he said this back in chapter 1 and verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What's Paul's point? This teaching hasn't come from God and is therefore dangerous. I am Paul. I am the apostle called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to preach and to teach and to explain the gospel to you. And when I came, I called you into that gospel. But now you've departed from that, which shows this is not from God. And because of that, it's dangerous. But once again, the, the thought might be, the response might be, well, come on, Paul. It's not that big a deal, isn't it? Surely it's only a little thing. But then he says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, leaven was a, a small piece of dough retained from a, a previous bake. And it was used in the same way as yeast. You'd mix it in with the new batch that you were making. And soon it would infuse everything and get into all of the bake. And it became a well-used illustration in the New Testament. It's almost like a theme running through uh, the yeast and the leaven to make the point that something seemingly insignificant, something seemingly tiny, can have an effect on a large scale. 
And just as a little leaven causes the whole dough to rise, so a little false teaching works through the whole Christian life, infuses every single part, which is why it's so dangerous. It has an effect on every area. Every part is shaped by it. And though he still has hope for the church, he's certain of the future for the false teachers in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. You see, in addition to branding the teachers ungodly, he now says they will bear a penalty. There'll be a judgment upon these teachers. There'll be a price to pay for leading the young Galatians astray. I wonder if Paul had in mind these words from the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Do you see the danger of false teaching, of leading others astray? There'll be a reckoning and the God of the gospel will bring into account all who distorted it and threw believers into confusion. And Paul finishes his argument by returning to himself. He began his letter, as he does quite often, with his credentials, reminding them that he was the apostle and he was the one who, in these circumstances, should be listened to. And he said this in verse 11 of chapter 1, For I would have, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, when you listen to me preach the gospel, it's as if Christ himself was standing before you and speaking. And he wants them to compare everything that they have heard from these false teachers with the gospel that Paul uh, proclaimed to them initially. He's saying, listen to what's being said and compare it with what Christ says. And if it fits in, great. And if it doesn't, well, it's obvious who's wrong. And so in, chapter 11, in verse 11 of chapter 5, he wants to show them just how far away these false teachers are from him. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. You see, if this new teaching was part of Paul's original teaching, if Paul was fine with circumcision being added, then why was he getting so much stick from these false teachers? Why were they talking him down so much? He's encouraging the Galatians to turn their brains on to see the lack of confidence this new teaching has in the genuine gospel. A lack of confidence in the offence of the cross. That phrase at the end of verse 11, in that case the offence of the cross has been removed. Again, the Greek word translated offence is scandalon. And it's not difficult, is it, to see what English word we get from that. The cross is a scandal. The cross is a miscarriage of justice where the innocent was condemned so that the guilty may go free. And the offence of the cross is that it strikes at the heart of human confidence, of human pride, of human self-reliance. It's offensive because it tells all of humanity that the only thing we bring to the party is our sin and our rebellion, our desire not to belong to God. That's all we bring to the situation. Everything good before during and after is his work and his alone. God has done it all, is doing it all, and will do it all. And the human heart finds that offensive. The human heart doesn't like that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may feel slightly insulted that some guy is standing at the front and telling you that there's nothing that you can do to be accepted by God. But I only say it because God himself says it good people 
bad people, charity givers, bank robbers, all fall short of God's standard and deserve to be punished. There is no way at all to become acceptable and to stay acceptable in front of God. But the bad news leads wonderfully to the good news. Jesus Christ, the acceptable one, the one who by his nature, by his merits, by his status, is acceptable, gave it up to take the punishment that we deserve. The righteous one became sin, so that sinners could be declared righteous, to have the hope of righteousness. It's all of Christ. He is the only way. And the false teachers found that offensive. They found it offensive because it took the emphasis off them and put it onto Christ. It took the glory away from them and put it onto Christ. And that offended them because it hit their pride. It hit their status. It hit the way that they liked to understand how these things went. So they tried to add in a bit of human performance. Teaching that there was something humanity could add to slightly redress the balance as to who was doing all of the work. Yeah, God does most of it, but there's still a bit of me involved, and that means I can take some of the credit. And what does Paul think of their attempts to deal with the offence of the cross? Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I don't know for sure, but I wonder if Paul had the next words of Jesus in Mark 9 in his mind. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. See, here in Galatia, circumcision is a physical symbol of something far deeper. It's the symbol of a heart problem that is separating not only themselves from Christ, but those who are teaching. What was the real problem? Their hearts needed to be taken out and thrown away. But what happens at that point? You die. You die. And the problem was they'd lost confidence in the only solution. They'd lost confidence in the ultimate heart surgeon, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they were going to have no confidence before God. See, to be a disciple of Christ is to be both a learner and a teacher. One of the reasons that we gather together on a Sunday is to be encouraged, is to be equipped, to be teachers of the gospel as we go back out into the world. And Paul wants to tread the fine line between stating the importance of teaching the right message, of getting it right, of making sure the focus is on Christ, and encouraging his readers to get out there and teach it and preach it to those who they meet. It's why we need to know the gospel, to have it in our hearts so that it shapes our words and our actions. It's why we read our Bible. It's why we listen to gospel preaching. It's why we read good gospel books. Because for our sake and for the sake of those who don't know Christ, it is critical that our lives and our teaching show complete confidence in the gospel. That we know deep down that Christ is all that we need and that that is conveyed to those who don't know him. So do you truly believe, do you truly believe that Christ is enough? And is it clear to those who know you best? See, it can be very easy to have a kind of intellectual agreement that, yes, I get what happened at the cross, but do we fundamentally believe it? Does it shape who we are? Is it clear? 
for those who know us best, that we stand on Christ and him alone. That through his blood there is forgiveness, acceptance and freedom and a way to know God, the God who made us, and to rest in him for eternity. Is that what fires you? Is that what people see in your life? You see, nothing is more important. Nothing is more important for ourselves and no message is more important for those who don't know Christ. And nothing takes a higher priority than demonstrating the confidence that we have in Christ's work to save, both now and forever. That this is a question of eternity. It's a question of life and death, of heaven and hell. It is the ultimate question. And so as we finish, I wonder how you would answer this question. Will you be in heaven? Will you be in heaven? The answer's, I'm not sure. I don't know. I hope so. And not answers for Christians confident in the gospel. For those in Christ, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And how can I say that so boldly, so confidently, so arrogantly? Because it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on me. If it did, then I would be saying, I don't know, I'm not sure, I hope so. But it doesn't. My hope is built on nothing less than Christ and his... I'm rubbish at remembering song words. (laughs) Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There we go. That's why I am sure. That's why I am confident. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ, the only way that you will fail to reach heaven is if Christ himself falls. And let me tell you, that's not going to happen. Have confidence. Have confidence that Christ is all you need. And then live out the truth of who you are, of all that Christ has done. And have confidence that for every step that you take in this life, Jesus Christ is all that you need. Let's pray together.